Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like The Lahaina banyan tree is not dead. Maui's 150-year-old banyan tree is growing new new leaves. It has sprouted to newness of life. Um, yes, charred by wildfires and just beginning a long recovery. Yes, but alive, alive. It's a great sign of hope. Um, wonderful, wonderful. You got to say it right, hope. Carmen. It's alive! Something like that, you know? Okay, maybe this is, not. This is, this is why we love you, Paul. This is, <laughs> this is why I usually have the mic off. It's <laughs> so good. It's so good. All right, so this 150-year-old cultural landmark, which dominates the square um, on Lahaina's famous Front Street, planted in 1873, largest one of its kind in the United States. It's uh, more than... 60 feet in height, it, uh, it's it got 46 major trunks because this is the way a banyan tree works. It spreads itself out over time. Um, and, and so it certainly looked to be dead, right? And so listen to some of these observations um, from people. Uh, it's a sign of new beginnings. People see it as a sign of hope, Um People are coming here and weeping. They are rejoicing. Uh, 75% of the tree right now is already showing new growth. It, anyway, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and so what should we as people of faith say about this? Like, I mean, a, a, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Like, if this doesn't make you think about Jesus and um, the the power of resurrection and the the signs that God gives us today, um, not only of terrible things in order that we might turn to him, but then these gracious, gracious evidences of newness of life. Like, this is an easy one, my friends. This one is an easy one to point to uh, and and talk about as Christians in the culture today. So let's refresh our uh, ourselves on the story of the stump of Jesse. You'd be thinking here about Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots, which will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge. He will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips kill the wicked. Righteousness righteousness, mm -hmm, shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf 
together, and a little child shall lead them. A cow and the bear graze together, their young lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall be able to play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Friends, that, that is a picture of the promised Messiah. In the days that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, obviously uh, Jesus was not yet in view. But you and I know the Messiah of whom this text speaks. And yes, we also still look forward to the fullness of the kingdom of heaven um, prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 11. We, we know the one who rises up as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. We know this Messiah uh, who is talked about in Isaiah chapter 11. And yes, we still look forward um, to the things that are prophesied in, uh, in this chapter in Isaiah that have yet to be fully realized when the kingdom of our God is fully present in the midst of the kingdoms of this earth. This is resurrection hope. This is resurrection hope. And so when you hear people talk about uh, the way um, people have been literally pouring 5,000 gallons of water every single day in an attempt to rehydrate the roots of the banyan tree. I want you to think about the way God's Holy Spirit pours out living water upon us, how the grace of God is poured out upon us in all sufficient measure. If people are are able to shoulder the burden of 5,000 gallons of water in order to bring a dead tree back to life, how much more so has the Lord our God done for us? You think your life is dead? God has poured out all that is necessary for you to be renewed and restored to newness of life. Can these dead bones live, these dry bones? Yes, they can, says the Spirit, who breathes new life even to that which appears to be dead. There is resurrection hope, and one day there will be there will be the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this earth, and all of these prophecies shall spring forth, um, and people will see them and bow down. All right, you and I have the opportunity to declare this resurrection hope in the midst of days when people feel like dead stumps. So let's pour a little living water on our neighbors today. Our friend Elizabeth Newman is going to join us next. We're going to talk about what's happening on the southern border of the United States. Um, Not only uh, what's happening here, but around the world in terms of human migration. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Elizabeth Newman, uh, security analyst. She works with the Moonshot Group and the National Immigration Forum. Elizabeth, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. All right. Um, can you help us understand what is happening at the U.S. southern border? Um, I don't know. I'm reading headlines today that Elon Musk has now gone down there. Um, is there is there a solution in sight This has been a problem for decades. The last major uh, 
immigration reform was in the 1980s. And um, much like it, many things that require congressional action, um, it's just not expected that Congress will be able to get together and do anything um, practically. So, um, so it just, it creates this uh, situation that is spiraling downwards. Um, I think five years ago when I was in the Department of Homeland Security and getting briefings on the uh, the surge at the border and, and what do we do about it, like we kind of felt like the situation was impossible then. It is worse now than it was then. Um, so just practically uh, what's happening is we have um, kind of a post-COVID uh, surge there was a period of time from 2020 until May of this year where the government used uh, something called Title 42, um, which is a section of the law that allowed us to effectively close the border. And um, it sent a signal downrange that uh, now's not the time to come, uh, that you're likely to get rejected from asylum claims, or uh, which is not entirely true, but it just... It was a pretty strong signal, and signals matter, and I'll, t I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But basically, that that um, restriction left because, of course, COVID, the COVID pandemic, the national emergency side of it uh, was considered to be over. There were a number of court cases um, over a period of, I want to say, 18 months where um, they were pressing on the government that Title 42 should not be in place. And, and finally, the uh, Biden administration um, uh, took it out and we reverted back to our old, not old, but the, the laws that are on the books for normal immigration procedures. And, and while we kind of expected an initial surge we, and we didn't see it, um, probably what we're seeing now is that uh, post-Title 42 surge. It's also seasonal. We usually do see increases um, in the fall because, of course, the summer is very hot and a lot of people choose to cross uh, in the desert because that's um, an easier place to not get caught. Um, so if you're going to cross in the desert, you don't, don't really want to do that in July. So a lot of people do make their way up um, to cross the border in the fall. So some of the numbers seasonally, it's expected to be higher. But it's also, it's more than that. Um, in fact, in uh, the last year or so, and really the, during the COVID period, we were primarily seeing single adults crossing the border. And that was believed to be primarily men seeking work. And we had a lot of repeat border crossers. So they would come across, get caught, get deported, and then they would come across again. And the goal was just to find a job so that they could send money back home. Now we're seeing primarily family units. And the last time we saw major family units was back in 2019. And the record high previously was 84,486 people in a month that were part of a family group. We now, uh, in August, exceeded that record. We had 93,108 people and family groups attempt to cross. Um, so there, that's a big change to go from single adults to family units. Um, and rather than crossing the border to seek work, which I'm sure many of them are, but um, the primary purpose seems to be to seek asylum. And the asylum process in the United States, um, there's there are there's a beautiful aspect to asylum, 
Unfortunately, the way in which the government processes asylum claims, it's really, really slow. So Carmen, um, it kind of creates what we call a pull factor. Basically, <clears throat> we have cartels telling people downrange, if you can just cross and make this asylum claim, you can probably live in the United States for five to seven years before your asylum claim is heard. And so that seems like a pretty good trade-off, right? People pay these cartels to smuggle them across the border. They might, often they pay a large sum to get like three or four attempts to cross the border. And, and then what you're getting for that payment is the opportunity to live in the United States for five to seven years. And when you're pending asylum, you can work. So you can more than make up that money that you've paid the cartels. Um, the reality is, though, in, unless the situation uh, down south, where most people are coming, it's Venezuela, it's Cuba, it's Nicaragua, it's Haiti, um, most of the people that are coming, they're coming because the conditions in their country are, are mm -hmm. horrific, right? So mm -hmm. if there weren't those push factors, they they wouldn't be paying cartels, they wouldn't be smuggling themselves into the United States seeking asylum. So there's like multiple factors here. It's very complex. Um, it, it We didn't get here in a day. We're not going to get out of here in a day. Um, it really requires thoughtful, um, compassionate, but also firm uh, people. And our laws are very broken. So it's the people that are on the front lines of this, are, their hands are somewhat tied in terms of being able to do things well. And it's not just laws, quite frankly, it's vastly under-resourced for the, the the numbers that are coming across the border. They just don't have enough people. They Their IT systems are outdated um, and they're trying to catch up, but it's just uh, a lot of, it's a mass of humanity and not a lot of systems to support processing them effectively. Okay, Elizabeth, we hear um, news headlines related to, let's say, New York City, you know, which has, you know, been uh, a quote unquote sanctuary city for for years. Um, and now the sanctuary is closed like they are doing everything they can to discourage um, people crossing the border uh, coming to New York City. In, in a, I mean, they have like a an ad campaign, uh, the, the you know, to, to tell people on on the southern side of the U.S. border, don't come to New York City. Like, focus, focus your desire somewhere else. Um, the the pull factor, the push factor, the reality that there are communities across the country that literally don't know what to do with all the people who are arriving. Um, I guess I'm wondering: is there an opportunity here for for the church? Like, there are churches in every community across the country. E even though you know, I'm going to be quick to say, along with you. We have a we have a crisis in maintaining our own national border, and that's a security issue. Um, but we also have this humanitarian reality that people are coming, and so once they're here, how do we show them genuine hospitality? Yeah, I'm so glad you you raised this, Carmen, because um, I think I mean historically, we can put it in historical context. Anytime you have an influx of, of immigrants the um, local population it, it tends to um, bristle or uh, feel uncomfortable. Um, so it's kind of a normal human reaction to be like, whoa, what's happening? Um, why is it in my backyard? Um, and so the church has this great opportunity to model a different approach to the stranger. And, and we have that model in Jesus, right? Like Jesus was the stranger and Jesus 
is hospitable to us, the stranger, right? So like we have this beautiful picture of um, hospitality from Jesus that we have this opportunity to extend to others when our neighbors and our friends and, and our community might have the opposite reaction. And I'm not suggesting it's easy, but since when did following Jesus, you know, we didn't do it because it was easy. Um, but, uh, you know, being, I, 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 even in my own um, personal life, right? I, I, I see the security problem. I have strong opinions about what we need, need to do to have organization at the border. So I, I want to know who is here. I want to know that they don't pose a threat to our community. There are ways that we can do that. And we've actually gotten really good at it. Um, in fact, part of the reason I got involved in immigration a couple of years ago was because I felt like people um, who were, uh, who supported a um, fewer immigrants into the United States policy were using the security argument inappropriately. I think they were mm -hmm. using fear mongering and they were claiming that there were lots of terrorists coming across the border. And as a counterterrorism expert, I just wasn't seeing that. And I wanted to speak out and, and help people understand, no, this is, it needs to be done right in order for security to work. But if it's done right, you can you can welcome people into the country and not have to worry about the security aspect. So we have really strong security systems. I will tell you that when you have a mass influx of people, it is harder to administer those security systems. So sure. that it's important that we we get that piece of it right. But once they are processed and they you know they've been checked, that we check biometrics, we check names, um, we we double check that they're not from. Uh, you know, a, a terrorist group or, or a foreign nation state that's trying to spy on us. Um, we check that they're not a, a horrid, um, uh, have a horrid criminal record. It Once they're here, then it does become about um, what can we do to welcome? And it is um, like when you meet a refugee or when you meet somebody seeking asylum, they have gone through tremendous trauma. Yeah. And they're they're so happy to be here um, to to experience the the relative safety compared to where they came from, but that doesn't necessarily erase the trauma of their past. And they need love, and they need practical support in their local organizations within your community that are likely organizing to try to provide that support. And one of the the greatest things you can do is is adopt. A, a refugee family or an asylum family um, so that they have the opportunity to to get oriented to society, like everything from uh, where the grocery store is and how to enroll your kids in school to, um, you know, trying to to navigate uh, the workforce system, especially if if they're still learning English, being an English partner, English as a second language partner is another great way if you don't have as much time um, to invest in a family you can, um, a lot of churches run Eng English as second language programs. There are lots of ways that you can contribute either directly or indirectly through material support uh, to help people feel welcome. And I just, I think it's such a contrast to the secular world who, because, I mean, you take New York City, and I was in New York City just a few weeks ago. Hey, we we got to take we got to take a quick we okay. got to take a very very brief break. But um, but I want to continue this conversation because I think that um, you're you're highlighting what is so important for us as Christians in the midst of this con uh, conversation. Um, so we're going to continue our conversation with Elizabeth Newman here in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. 
As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Elizabeth Newman. All right, Elizabeth, pick up where you uh, left off on that thought in terms of you know, adopting a refugee or an asylum family to orient them to American life, everything that's going on, let's say, in New York City. Um, you know, I, I guess one of the thoughts that I have is, you know, there's lots of folks with uh, empty, empty buildings, empty, empty second or third houses, empty rooms. Like I, you know, what are we talking about here? Are we actually talking about bringing families into our home in the same way that Christ takes us into his his household? You know, when um, the Afghan refugees were were coming over, that was a massive influx. I think it was close to 50,000, people that came in. Um, uh, and a lot of our systems, this, this is during the fall of Afghanistan, August of, what was that, 2021? Um, yeah, two years ago. It, yep. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I um, at the time, uh, criticized the government. I, I just, I was, uh, it was a, a very disappointing way that we left Afghanistan. Nevertheless, um, the, uh, my, my former colleagues did some amazing things to like figure out how to, how do we rescue as many people as possible and brought them to the United States and they had been security cleared and, and all of the things. And yes, you ended up with people, um, uh, hosting Afghan refugees in their, in their rooms or in their homes or in their spare, spare guest houses or guest, um, apartments and condos and, um, it didn't, I don't think that that was the long-term solution, but it certainly was a short-term solution. And it is possible in certain communities that might be where we are. Um, usually the municipal or state governments provide temporary housing while trying to figure out how to find something more permanent. Um, but lo- the way that um, we have organized and structured the refugee system which is different than asylees. It's different than the people being bused from the, the border, I should say. But um, I want to talk about refugee system because it's much more organized. Um, there are designated nonprofit groups that support the State Department in welcoming refugees and then like getting them resettled. So one way you could get involved is getting involved with one of those designated uh, nonprofit groups that trains people. They actually have a system that they put people through to be able to know what's the best way to help uh, a refugee that's coming into the United States. So that might be one way. I'm thinking like uh, Catholic Charities, Lutheran Services, um, uh, and Carmen, I'll send you some some names of these groups so that you can put them in your show notes. Um, But there, there are a number of designated agencies that know how to do this well. Most likely, they are also supporting their communities with this influx of asylees coming from the southern border. So that's why I would point you there. But that doesn't mean an independent church um, couldn't uh, take on uh, a special project 
um, independently of those you know larger nonprofits and find ways uh, to support the the local asylee population that's in their community. Um, but what I'm at least what I've observed is that most cities and states have started to put some structure around and there are uh, kind of places you'd want to check in, you know, who is organizing. Um, it might be it might be a government worker or it might be a nonprofit that's doing it on behalf of the government in your community. Check in with them and see what they need and see how you your church can best support them. Um, and and you can do it within, you know, your existing resources. If you if you're a church with lots of uh, physical infrastructure like buildings, um, maybe they do need space. Uh, for people to sleep temporarily while they are getting settled and figuring out the next step. Uh, maybe they just uh, need um, volunteers to show up at a, a separate location. So there's lots, lots of ways to contribute. And certainly, um, I think that the role that we have, while we might have our political opinions about what the government should be doing, and it's totally reasonable for us to be frustrated that our government is not doing this well, I think we need to separate that from our approach to the 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 stranger, the sojourner in our country. The Bible is very clear about what our attitude to them should be, and it we don't need to confuse those two things. We can have we can believe both things. The government should be doing better, um, and we need to care for the people that are in our community. Uh, maybe you are wondering what's something tangible you can do. Did you know that applying for a work permit if you're here illegally? Uh, applying for a work permit costs between $410 and $495. So if you're wondering why people aren't working, it could be that they simply cannot afford to pay the cost of applying for a work permit. It takes two to seven months to get one. So what are they going to do in that two to seven months? Uh, how are they going to care for their family? So those are just some uh, some quick thoughts there. Elizabeth, as always, thank you so, uh, so very much. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. We're going to have a conversation next about pursuing God's presence. If you were listening during last week's Faith Radio fundraiser, which thank you so much for the more than thousand of you who came forward with uh, gifts to the ministry, um, you know, supporting us moving forward. Genuinely appreciate that. One of the people that we heard from, her name is Victoria. She lives on St. John's Island in South Carolina. And um, in her prayer request and her question that she lifted up um, was about desiring to experience God's presence. Like, like, you know, she's like, I, you know, I'm a believer, but I don't, I don't, I'm not experiencing, I'm not feeling what other people seem to be feeling in terms of the presence of the living God. Um, Roger Helland is going to join us next, and we're going to talk about pursuing God's presence. Um, what does it mean to experience the, the Holy Spirit? What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to come upon you? Um, what does it mean you know, for God to actually manifest his presence and how can we experience it every single day? That conversation's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. How do you experience the presence of God? How do you practice the presence of God? How do you pursue the presence of God? I remember... um, a little book called Practicing the Presence of God uh, that I read. I think I was in college when I read it the first time. I have reread it since then. Uh, and it's the story of Brother Andrew. And, you know, he he wanted to experience God's presence, but he thought that was going to be far different than 
um, than what he was just practicing in his day-to-day life. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to practically uh, pursue the presence of God in our daily lives. Roger Helland is here. He is the author of Pursuing God's Presence, which is a practical guide for daily renewal and joy. Roger, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, good morning from Canada. You're in Minnesota, correct? Well, I I am actually in Middle Tennessee, but yes, through the magic of radio, uh, yes. all of us are all together now. And I had the absolute privilege of visiting uh, visiting Canada earlier this summer. Flew into Calgary, um, went oh. to just some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my whole life, and oh, yes. so. Yeah, I'm just so, north of Calgary, about about ten minutes. Just stunning. You live in a you live in a beautiful place. So, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's start with this. Could you just share with folks, um, con- your not just your story, singular, but um, maybe stories of your conversion experiences, plural? Because I think that first of all, that in and of itself is a lesson to all of us. Okay. So I grew up in Southern California. So I'm actually an American, got dual citizenship. So I grew up. uh, So this movie, The Jesus Revolution, that came out uh, earlier this year, for those that have seen it, is sort of indicative of my own conversion experience. Uh, I was sort of saved on the fringes of the Jesus Revolution in Southern California at the time. Most of us had long hair. We were smoking a lot of uh, unfavorable uh drugs and lifestyle of pagan lifestyle i basically grew up as a pagan i never went to church never prayed never really read the bible and you know religion wasn't anything that was in my life in fact jesus was a swear word in my family believe it or not but um i was in the u.s army at the time and a friend of mine this would be about 1969, had become what they call back then a Jesus freak. And he had actually gotten saved. His life was totally transformed and cleansed. And uh, one night uh, I came home on Christmas leave, and um, I was actually peaking on LSD, believe it or not. And uh, he started sharing the gospel with me, and I, I felt this penetration which I look back now knowing it was absolutely the manifest presence of God in my life. And he was piercing my darkness. And uh, I was drawn to pray my first prayer I had ever prayed. I basically prayed, Lord Jesus, if you are real, I want to believe. That was it. A couple weeks later, I was finished with boot camp. I'd gone to Fort Lewis, Washington. I was sitting in the barracks uh, on a cold, bright Saturday, blue sky morning uh, in Washington, And I was reading this King James Bible that my stepdad had given to me. And I think I was reading in the book of John. And I felt this inrush of light and love and joy and just incredible um, uh, power of the Spirit of the Lord. And I look back on that, I believe, as my own personal Pentecost, where I knew there was a change in my life. And I had been converted from darkness to light. And from that point on, I began to follow Jesus. Yes, he's began to purge me of my pagan filth. That's it doesn't, I mean, it, there's there's this one sense that it happens all at once, which I appreciate. And then you also are acknowledging that it happens as a process over time. So um, this, this, um, this personal Pentecost, right, this filling, yes. and yet, 
And yet this acknowledgement of this ongoing purging, can you just just walk us around in that? Because I I am pretty sure, um, Roger, that I'm not the only person who maybe has some confusion about um, right. like the temporary filling of the Holy Spirit versus like the long-term fullness of the Spirit. I right. mean, there's just so many things we could dig around in here. Yeah, so theologians call sort of the presence of God in, in two main categories. There would be the omnipresence. So God is present everywhere, always, like, kind of like the air we breathe. And we're not always aware of it, but we can't live without that air. And so we're surrounded by air, but God surrounds us by his presence. And in a sense, uh, the fullness of the Spirit would be indicative of that, where he indwells us, he lives inside of us, we're his temple, our character is shaped by him, and it's an ongoing process of living, you know, through the presence of God inside of us. But then there's those momentary occasions, those sort of those dynamic times where he moves in a bit closer, and and the theologians would call that sort of the manifest presence of God, where he makes himself known in ways that are often very tangible. We know in the Old Testament, he did that through, you know, the fire and through the pillar of cloud. He did it through the priests coming into the tabernacle and temple, and, you know, they could hardly move. And, we, you know, there's demonstrations of the power and presence of God through the prophets and different one, of course, in Jesus and in the early church, the manifestations of the gifts and the power. And there are times where the filling is instantaneous. It's for the moment. They're filled, Acts chapter 2, they're filled in Acts chapter 4, and there's dramatic encounters with God at times where there's this, again, enhanced and concentrated presence that creates boldness and courage and uh, effectiveness in preaching and prayer and teaching and witness. And so uh, when we seek the presence of the Lord, we're actually seeking both to experience his His omnipresence, but also his manifest presence. So, so I talk about that in my book, Pursuing God's Presence at Length. That's so good. We're um, we're talking with Roger Helland. The book is Pursuing God's Presence. We do have copies to give away today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, all right, Roger. Let's uh, let's do a little Hebrew here. Um, <laughs> kav- kavod, kavod. Right. Uh, what yes. what does it mean, and how does it help us understand God's presence? Excellent. For the first thing, you pronounced it correctly. Most people pronounce it kavod, but uh, <laughs> it should have an e at the end in the English transliteration. It's a magnificent word. So the kavod of God, which is. Um, used about 250 times or 350 times in the particularly in the Old Testament is usually translated as glory. So when Habakkuk tells us that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, the word kabod is used there. And really it refers to weight, the weight of the presence of God, which is so strong and compelling and radiant and and full of, you know, dynamic perfection and holiness, that is where we are in a place where, for example, the, the heavens declare the kavod, the, the glory of God, his presence is so strong. It really refers to God himself. And so part of the theology, if you want to put it that way, of pursuing God's presence is to understand that 
his kavod captures all that who God is, and we can experience that kavod in ways that are transformational for joy, for healing, for holiness, for transformation in our lives, and being formed into Christ likeness. We pursue the kavod of God. And as we pursue it, um, like uh, like our jaws drop, um, we're, we're all filled. I mean, it's ter- it's like terrifying in yes. a positive way. Yes, um, yes. We're 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 breathless. Um, yes. and yet we want more. Like we want it's, more. Right. Yes. I mean, that's that's sort of how you know you're turned in the right direction, pursuing, um, pursuing the God who is. If you're if those are not a part of it, like uh, then maybe you're not quite looking in the right direction. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, the Bible is really clear that the supreme search is is searching and seeking the presence of God. And so, one of the mm-hmm. key verses that I develop early on in the book is Psalm 105:4, which clearly states, "Seek the Lord and His strength." seek his presence, or literally in the Hebrew, his face, continually. That means to be without interruption. And the word seek at the beginning means to really beat a path to the Lord, to inquire and to discover him. Second word refers to obtaining him, looking for him, searching him, for him in all dimensions of life. And so the way I try to illustrate it is we seek after things that are really important to us. So for example, if if one of your listeners uh, lost their wallet or their purse or they lost their laptop or they lost their iPhone or, you know, a credit card or whatever, guess what? Everything stops. The pursuit of discovering that item becomes central. Everything gets, you know, funneled into where they've got to find it because it's so important. Or let's say for those that are parents or grandparents and you lose Mm -hmm. sight of one of your children or grandchildren in a busy shopping mall or at a playground. I think that's happened to many of us. There's this stark sort of urgency. Well, that's the same urgency that the the text of scripture is really inviting us to do. When we seek the Lord and when we're, you know, uh, given the exhortation in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, where we are told that, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And anyone that draws near to him must believe that he exists, number one. So there's an awareness that God is out there, that he exists. Believe it or not, even Christians can live a life in, in a, such a way that it seems like God doesn't exist because we're so busy. But it also says that for those who earnestly seek him. So we have many exhortations in Scripture to seek the presence, the face, the person of God as our central priority of search in life. Mm, it's so and, good. It's so good. We're going to yeah. continue this conversation with Roger in just a moment. Again, we're talking about his new book, Pursuing God's Presence, a practical guide for daily renewal and joy. Uh, you can enter the drawing for the copies we have to give away today. Just text the word book to 877 877- Nine three three two four eight four. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, let's get super duper practical with Roger Helen. The book is Pursuing God's Presence: A Practical Guide for Daily Renewal and Joy. We are talking about um, the 
the reality of the God who is and how you can experience his presence moment by moment, day by day. Um, so let's get practical, Roger. Uh, how how can I be more aware of God's presence around me every day? Well, that's a great question because most of us live pretty busy lives and we can crowd God awareness out of our lives in such a way that we can live as if he doesn't even exist. And I think we're all guilty of sort of being too busy. So I think the first practice in terms of a practical outworking, and by the way, I share all these practices in my book, you know, in the home, in the workplace, in the church, in our personal lives, in, in the pursuit of holiness, discipleship. But I think the first place is that we settle it in our heart that to pursue the Lord primarily through the context of prayer as we start our day every morning. Like, for example, this morning I was up at 5.30 and I'm praying and, and aligning my heart to pay attention to God for this day. Mm-hmm. And so I, I discuss the practicing the presence, but part of that has to do with the discipline of what I call the discipline of awareness. And so we're aware of a lot of things that are we're aware of the weather, we're aware of you know, people around us and, you know, global news and such, but are we aware of God? And so how do we sort of pay attention to what the Lord is doing in and around and through us? We start with scriptures. So we have a, a firm, clear understanding of the truth and the way in which God works, his will, his voice. And then secondly, we pay attention to those nuances of how he speaks into our mind and our heart, even in our emotions and through scripture. And it sets an agenda, a framework for a clarity of communication. So I look at prayer as communion and communication with God and uh, scripture fed, spirit led. That's one practical aspect. Another one is what I call to practice enchantment. So right now here in Canada, just north of Calgary, the fall has really set in beautifully. And Mm -hmm. I know your radio audience, you have different ones out there that live out in forests or in in glades and such where the the trees are changing colors and, you know, the sky is blue and the the days are getting shorter and pretty soon the snow is going to come here (laughs) in Canada. And uh, enchantment with the creation of God, the glory of God is conveyed through cult or through, uh, through creation. And so when we pay attention to the detail, the beauty, the, the, you know, the colors and, and, you know, different types of animals and trees and mountains and lakes and rivers and prairies and oceans, it should really, we should become enchanted to the mm-hmm. place that we are aware that God has created this uh, fantastic universe and it, it showcases his power and his his glory. So those are some of the practical ways. And there's others that I discuss in the book as well. Um, nature, the natural world, wonderful, yeah. um, wonderful entry points, right? The glory of God is absolutely announced um, all around us all the time. Uh, so word. good. Um, let's uh, let's do this. Um, I have been in a church. I am yeah. confident you have as well, uh, yeah. where you actually can sense that God's presence is absent. Yes. Right. Um, can we talk about that? Like, um, yes. <laughs> can, will it come back? Like, can you get it back? Uh, well, yes, with God's way, you know, in the old Testament it talks about the Ichabod and how the glory departed Israel because of disobedience or a lack of 
attentiveness to his power and his presence, his word. So when it comes to the centrality of the presence of God, you got to remember that the church is really supposed to be the temple of God, the habitation of his presence. But what happens is in a lot of our churches, we can get sort of sidelined, I think, with pursuing other things. And uh, even division and a sense of a lack of holiness in the context of our churches really does diminish the presence of God. And so wherever there is freedom and there's spirit, there's presence. And, and so Jesus said that his house, his temple, the place of his presence shall be a place of prayer. So I would say, how much prayer is actually going on in the lives of our churches? Not just opening and closing, you know, with prayer or having a prayer meeting, maybe midweek for an hour, or having a pastoral prayer in the middle. But I'm saying really orienting our our lives, our leadership, our board meetings, our, you know, Sunday morning services, our gatherings around prayer, where often I think we devote ourselves to sermons and singing. But how much prayer actually occurs in the context of our churches? And so without prayer and without spirit, which I believe prayer is a direct activator of of presence and spirit, uh, it can become pretty hollow. And then if you add a little bit of flesh, a little bit of devil, (laughs) a little bit of division in there, God sort of just steps back. and We're left with a pretty hollow situation. Mm Mm-hmm. And we've all felt that, and um, yeah, and so a renewal of the a renewal of the spirit and renewal of the presence of God um, might need to be our prayer, uh, and then you know refocusing our our heart's desire on seeking Him first, like literally Absolutely. seeking Him first. Um, so Absolutely. good. All right, Roger, your book is so good. It's such a gift. Um, it is genuinely practical. We do have copies to give away. Um, and so just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Roger, would you come back sometime? Because I think this conversation also about being a prayer ambassador, um, I'd yes. like to have that conversation um, on another occasion. Could we do that? I'd love to. Uh, yeah, I'm the prayer ambassador for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. So we're doing some prayer initiatives across the country that I think fit in with, with the larger move of God of what he's doing and all kinds of places, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, at Asbury University that happened last February, or it's down in Southern California at Pirate's Cove, where Greg Laurie just held a 4,500-person baptism service, where it happened years ago in Jesus' Revolution. So I'm, yeah, prayer, I think, is really being revived today, and we need to keep the fires of prayer burning. Um, well, we'll have you back, and we'll talk more about that. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll learn to pray from you and with you as well. That's Dr. Roger Helland. Uh, the book that we've been talking about today, Pursuing God's Presence, a practical guide for daily renewal and joy. Um, all right. Um, in conclusion today, happy birthday to former President Jimmy Carter. He is 99 today. Um, here is what our brother in Christ, Jimmy Carter, would probably want you to be more concerned about. He is a person who has a rebirth day. Um, he has been reborn to a living hope. Have you? Um, that is really the question um, of concern. It's not really your birthday that matters so much as your rebirth day. So have you been reborn to a living hope? I hope so. Um, if not, we'd love to talk with you about that. You can always communicate with us. The text line is open, 877 Nine three three two four eight four, 
Or you can email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.